From the Wharton School of the University of Pennsylvania and Sirius XM, this is the Work and Life podcast, which explores how to create harmony among the different parts of life, work, home, community, and the private self, your mind, body, and spirit. The conversation you're about to hear was originally recorded on the Work and Life radio show on Sirius XM 111, business radio powered by Wharton. Here's your host, founding director of Wharton's Work-Life Integration Project and author of the bestseller, Total Leadership, Professor Stu Friedman. My guest in this episode is Sidney Finkelstein, who is the author, most recently, of Super Bosses, How Exceptional Leaders Master the Flow of Talent. He is the Stephen Roth Professor of Management and Associate Dean for Executive Education at the Tuck School of Business at Dartmouth College. Professor Finkelstein has published several great books, including the number one bestseller in the U.S. and Japan, Why Smart Executives Fail. It's great reading. He is a recognized thought leader on leadership, strategy, and corporate governance. He's listed in the world's top 25 leadership gurus. Sid and I talk about the difference between a good boss and a super boss, and the things you can do to become a super boss by supporting the people around you. Towards the end of this conversation, we talked to a Work and Life radio show listener who called in to get some help in dealing with a micromanaging, definitely not super boss. You don't want to miss that. So here now is my conversation with Sid Finkelstein. Sid, welcome to the show. Hi, Stu. Great to talk to you. Well, it's great to have you here, uh, and thank you for joining us uh, this evening. So let's get right into it. Uh, super bosses. What separates good bosses from the best bosses, from the super bosses? Well, you know, super bosses are people, bosses, that help other people accomplish more than they ever thought possible. Hmm. And I don't know that there's a lot of people listening that will say, hey, I've got a boss like that or I've had a boss like that. Some have, many haven't. Good bosses will do some of the same things as a super boss, but super bosses will do them more intensely. Take, for example, uh, mentoring. Mentoring is a well-known idea. People talk about it all the time. Sure. And if you have a good boss, they'll kind of give you some advice and maybe give you some, kind of help you navigate the organizational uh, uh, system. But uh, super bosses are kind of uh, like um, super mentors. They're mentors on steroids. They are always engaged with you, always interacting with you. So they do more things. They do things in, in a more intense way. And then they also, um, they also do some stuff that very, very few even good bosses do. All right. So what is it that really separates what you refer to as the super bosses from the rest of the pack? You know, there's a, there's a bunch of things, but uh, just to name uh, a couple that I think are really, uh, really kind of cool. One is around uh, an apprenticeship. You know, that's the way everyone pretty much learned their craft for centuries. And it's gone by the wayside over the last, uh, certainly over the last hundred years. Mm -hmm. And um, what super bosses have done have resurrected the old apprenticeship model where you're, you're, you're kind of rolling up your sleeves and working with people on your team. You're engaged with them closely. Uh, you're not quite going as far as that micromanagement word, but you're also not afraid to get, get in the trenches with them. You're a teacher. You're a coach. Um, and a lot of the, it's kind of like the master-apprentice type of relationship that 
we all know and is well known is uh, is been resurrected here in, in 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 the management world in the leadership world and i think that's that, that's something that is still um maybe not as common as uh as maybe we we'd like to see it but uh, super bosses certainly do uh, certainly su- certainly do that and and then i'll say one other one other thing that really is a big highlight uh, mm-hmm. i think of what they do that's different and that is uh, they're they are just big time innovators they innovate in their business um, uh, work, you know, whether it's a mm-hmm. uh, George Lucas and uh, um, with uh, with technology and digital technology for film, whether it's a Ralph Lauren and and fashion and his innovations, kind of redefining what uh, what the lifestyle of fashion could be, um, or Julian Robertson and hedge funds, they are big time innovators in their business, and they're also innovators in how they think about people, and I think that's a, that's a combination that's pretty. Uh, uh, pretty impressive, and uh, one we could learn from. So, when you say innovators in terms of how they deal with people, lead them, cultivate them, what what do you? Could you uh, just explore that a little further? Yeah. In what ways are they innovative? So, um, give you a couple of examples. So, one is how they uh, how they find talent, how they think about hiring talent. Mm-hmm. Most companies and most of the world of HR has a there's a model in place. And the model is let's identify what we need, come up with a job description, and then go and go through lots of resumes and interviewing and pick the person that checks the most boxes and is the most impressive in that process. And it's not that super bosses will never do that in a large company. When you're hiring a lot of people, you have to follow some of these some of these norms. But super do, super bosses do something different, which is they're willing to create a job for someone that they think is the right person. And I know that. There's shutters going up in the uh, in the HR community hearing hearing that, but that's what they do. They are willing to um, to to create the job. I mean, there's lots of good stories from you know Ralph Lauren and finding uh, finding people at a finding a woman at a restaurant when he was out with his family, getting uh, getting excited about you know look how she was dressed and how she put herself together mm-hmm. and how she thought about clothes and the way you start having a chat with people occasionally when you're out at, the, at dinner and uh, next thing you know he's offering her a job. To, uh, to Bill Walsh, the famous San Francisco 49er head coach, that um, um, that that really gave birth to so many of the great uh, head coaches in the National Football League, mm-hmm. and how he thought about uh, and the types of people that he would end up uh, he would end up uh, drafting. He'd create uh, opportunities for people that uh, that wouldn't uh, fit the mold of what most most people are looking at. So. Uh, mm-hmm. How they look at people, and I'll say one other thing. Actually, it's like talent. if I can jump in here, the, that the the primacy is given to the potential for mm-hmm. the expression of a unique talent rather than the fit uh, in a in a particular role that's already existing. Is yeah, that is that right? That's exactly right. And you know, they're looking for people that have that flexibility. I call it extreme flexibility. It's one of the things they care about because they hmm. want to move people into different jobs and they want to create big opportunities for people. So how did you identify, I want to back up here, um, this category of people, like who, who fit the description and how did you, um, how did you go about doing this research, I guess is, is what I'm asking. Sure. Yeah. So, um, it's, it, it's kind of funny. I started off just, uh, as, as an observation I had of something that I thought was kind of interesting and that was, I'm, I'm really into, um, I'm a foodie and into uh, high end restaurants, good quality restaurants and, mm-hmm. um, everyone. They have a few of those in Hanover. Uh, actually not, but that's okay. <laughs> um, but there happens to be a place called Chef Panisse in Berkeley, California. Of course, I've been there. Yes, and, and I have as well. And um, Alice and, Waters' great invention. 
Alice Waters, and you and she. What has she done? She reinvented the farm-to-table organic mm-hmm. food, local sourcing of uh, of quality ingredients. Uh, everything revolving around the ingredients, and it turns out that so many of the people that work for her went through that restaurant, became big names in the restaurant business themselves. And I so I saw that, I observed that, and I said, well, that's kind of interesting. I wonder if it's true in another industry that there's this one or a very small number of people that have had this outsized influence in the development of talent. Mm-hmm. And that's when I went to the NFL, because I happened to like that as well. And it didn't take long to realize it was Bill Walsh. And NFL's a good example, because that's an industry, because sports... Uh, the world of sports is loaded with data mm-hmm. um, where you can actually measure it very, very precisely. For example, um, out of the 32 head coaches in the past uh, season in the NFL, fully 20 of them were either working directly or indirectly for Bill Walsh. That's Sunday. incredible. It's crazy. And so then I started, you know, once I saw that in the NFL, totally different from, you know, Chef Panisse, I thought, well, let's go look at some other industries. And I went from advertising to hedge funds to consumer packaged goods to American comedy and fashion, and um, it wasn't hard to find through talking to a lot of people and, uh, and kind of doing a deep dive to what was going on in that industry. It wasn't hard to find that, that one or two, those one or two people that had this outsized influence in the development of really a generation of talent. Mm-hmm. So that was the, the criterion for selection, is people who have had a huge impact on their field through the growth of talent in that field. That's exactly right. Wow. Okay. So now that everybody understands how you chose these people, you you then uh, looked at well, what is it that they do to to have this outside impact on the growth of talent in their field? And so apprenticeships, you know, creating roles for people to enable them to express their unique talents. Uh, I'm curious, especially on this show, we focus on work and the relationship to the its relationship to the rest of of life. Is there something that super bosses do? That is, uh, you know, uh, that particularly invests in the person as a whole human being. Is that a part of the yes, the magic? So it's. Uh, I don't know whether it would be the same way that you or your own work might uh, might indicate, but I'll tell you a, a couple of ways that I think that happens. Number one, people that work for super bosses are really engaged in the job. You know, the employee engagement scores are disastrous everywhere. Yes, uh, they they have created a job where individual contributors can actually have an impact. They, uh, they know that they're important because everybody's important. And that's, that's a powerful thing in, 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 in your life, to have that feeling, mm-hmm. to know that it's one of the biggest motivators out there. And that's, that's part of what super bosses do. And, and the other thing they do, and this is really about the whole career, if you will, is that they are, in many cases, even willing to help you if you're working on their team help you move forward in your career, not just working for them, but going outside of that team to mm-hmm. another part of the company or even a different organization entirely. And that's a bit unusual, that you would actually groom talent. And the subtitle of the book is, you know, being ma- mastering the flow of talent. Yes. So not just people coming in, not just what you do with them when they're part of you, your team and the organization, but what you do as, uh, as, as they move out. And in some cases, even help them move out. It's, uh, mm-hmm. it's very counterintuitive, but if you think about what's really important for an individual, what do they want? Well, I don't think most individuals are thinking what they want is to work for Ms. X or Mr. Y, who's your boss, for the rest of their life. They're looking to fulfill their own potential. Of course. And that's what uh, super bosses enable them to do. 
You know, I was a uh, an executive at Ford Motor Company for a few years, as as I've, I've probably told you in one of our previous conversations, from 1999 to 2001. And I, so I was head of leadership development for Ford. And uh, I hired a lot of people uh, in that role. And one of the one of the uh, elements, critical elements of uh, of my interviews, and I did literally hundreds of interviews with people, was to explore with them what what they would want to do next. Like what would what would success look like in terms of the next job that they would have following their stint working in my in my shop. And uh, it's a question that that many of them had not been asked before. Um, but I, I really tried to make it, I didn't always succeed, but I, I really tried to make it a point of focus with the people who came to work for me that they would, um, leave their time with me in a better, in a better role following, uh, that experience. And that, uh, the more I made that an explicit part of my hiring practice, uh, the more that other people, of course, wanted to work for me. Exactly right. I use the term talent magnet in the book yeah. to describe just what you're talking about. Uh, so I, I know that listeners are probably eager to find out, well, what do I do to enhance my capacity as a boss that is a super one so that I can have a, a bigger impact on the world through the legacy that I create uh, through the people that I cultivate? What can people do? Right. So I, I want to say right off the top, every single thing that super bosses do is teachable, is learnable. It's, it's, That's it's good not, news. It's not rocket science. It takes it takes a lot of work. You don't become you know Ralph Lauren or George Lucas overnight. There's a lot you got to do. But if you're willing to do it, it's actually it's it's all there. It's all possible. And um, and in fact, I try to talk, I try to talk a lot about some of the specific steps you can take from even what we talked about earlier in terms of hiring somebody. You have your whole, whole method of hiring, but mm-hmm. how about just experimenting and trying hiring one person? going out of your way to think about how to find somebody where you find the person before you find the job mm-hmm. and back them into it. And you know, the, the sky's not going to fall when you do it. And you're going to begin that process of just opening your brain, your mind to you know, the possibility of finding talent in all kinds, of, all kinds of other places. I think there's some really specific things you can do as well that go far beyond that. Mm-hmm. I would look carefully at your calendar. We're so scripted these days, right? People have so many meetings, and those meetings are killers. I am I'm just, I, I don't understand why we put ourselves through that in job after job with so many meetings. Push yourself out of that world. Of course, it's not going to disappear. But leave time for much more unstructured interaction mm-hmm. where you pretty much an- uh, arrive unannounced at the cubicle or office or desk of someone on your team, and you dedicate 30 minutes or an hour to digging in closely with her or with him exactly what they're doing, and you push them and you challenge them and you, you coach them and you help them think about it maybe a little bit differently, and certainly you, you, you enable them to learn from your own, your own experience. It's a little thing, but it actually mm-hmm. makes, makes a big difference. You could even do it in smaller chunks. It doesn't have to be a, a full hour or even a half hour or even 20 minutes in, in, in 10 minutes. Uh, or even five, you can have an interaction that really touches people and demonstrates to them your interest in their development, right? You, re- you, really, you really could. Um, uh, it's a question, and how hard is that to do in the scheme of things? It's only hard if we allow ourselves to, to adopt this idea that, oh, I'm so busy, I'm running here, I'm doing that, I'm doing this. We push that on ourselves. We constrain ourselves in so many ways, and mm-hmm. I think it's a mistake. So super bosses are, are, are looking for those uh, looking for those opportunities I also think we should think about how accessible we make it so this is about 
us as a boss going to find somebody else to talk to on our team and help them or, or coach them. But how easy are we, what were the barriers that we're putting in front of us that we might not even know hmm. that make it difficult for people on our team to interact with us, kind of the other part of that relationship. And a, a remarkable number of super bosses place their desks uh, not in an office, not in a corner office, but a wide open area where mm-hmm. anyone could reach them at any time. So being accessible. It's a, it, it's a symbolic thing, mm-hmm. but it, it's meaningful, I think. So you definitely can do, uh, you definitely can do that. Um, I wanted to ask you about whether super bosses are always nice. In other words, is it possible to be a super boss who is like scary uh, or can, you know, uh, in, 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 in infuse uh, a work environment with a sense of fear while still holding people to really high standards and pushing them far? Yeah, it's, um, it, it, it's a good question because being a super boss doesn't mean you're a soft touch. Mm-hmm. It, uh, the definition of a super boss is someone who helps other people get better and creates talent. Well, there's a lot of ways to do that. And while the super boss playbook, if you will, is very similar in terms of apprenticeship and innovation and finding talent, the style does vary. And in, in the book, I actually talk about three different styles, including one that, uh, dare I say, it's, uh, it's called the, it's the, the glorious bastard. Mm-hmm. Um, it's the it's the manager, the Larry Ellison type, if you will, mm-hmm. maybe the Steve Jobs type. Although Steve Jobs never doesn't appear in my book at all, I didn't study Apple closely at all. Mm-hmm. But it's that personality that we're familiar with now. They are just really tough, and they're not necessarily the best, uh, the, the happiest places to work. So it's not for everyone. But if you can handle it, and and you can absorb the learning that's going on, mm-hmm. this kind of hyper intense environment, then the opportunities are are gigantic. And you look at the the legacy of a, of a Larry Ellison, all the people that work for him that ended up, uh, you know, Mark Benioff running Salesforce.com now, and lots of others. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's not, it's not an easy thing to do for those types of people. So high expectations are important. You know, I wonder if there are lessons that you drew, whether in the book or just in your own life, uh, about cultivating talent as a super boss and being a parent. Do you see any parallels? Yeah, I um, I found the more I got into the super boss world, mm-hmm. the more you you see that it applies to um, well to to everything. And uh, uh, in in this case, I actually dedicated the book to my own uh, my own mother, uh, and I called her the first super boss I ever had. Nice. Yeah. What made her a super boss, Sydney? Uh, well, the, now you're gonna have to give me several hours on the phone. Okay, on the you got back. a minute. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Well, certainly high expectations, but you just knew uh-huh. that this was someone that had that was that had uh, your best interests at heart, uh-huh. that wanted you to be successful, but also was going to was not going to just kind of let you linger. Was gonna was, was gonna open the door to a world that says there, there's nothing you can't do. Um, I know, it turns out not to be true. I'm not an Olympic athlete. I never made uh, the Montreal Canadiens hockey team. But is that what she wanted? I would have loved to be a hockey player. But, but is that what she wanted? Your mom. What she wanted is for me to have opportunities to, to fulfill my, my potential. Mm-hmm. And, and she opened the door to, to doing that. And she did it, you know, in a very subtle way, just by talking. You know, it's not like a, mm-hmm. there was no lecture going on here. It was maybe just being a good parent, but it had a gigantic impact on mm-hmm. And how do you think that translated, if I may ask, to your own parenting style? You have kids, right? I do. I have actually one daughter who's now um, 25 years old. And... Um, 
uh, I have done so many of the same types of things I thought I learned. Mm-hmm. But you know what's funny is it's only in doing this this research for super bosses that I came to the realization about some of the things we're talking about now. You know, things that are in you you don't even know. There's stories I remember from my own life, my own life that happened to me with different people doing different things mm-hmm. um, that were very impactful. But I didn't appreciate or fully uh, fully appreciate just how meaningful some of those things were mm. and in thinking back and doing this own research and talking about all these other people uh, it, it became apparent uh, Jessica is calling from Philadelphia to talk with you Sydney Jessica welcome to work and life how can we help you hi thank you for having me yeah I just I had a question um, I work in corporate America and I have a boss who's very um, who goes by the laws of micromanagement. So she, you know, every day we use salesforce.com. So um, she's, you know, where are you? What are you doing at this time, this time, this time? I'm in sales, so I'm never um, usually in the office. But mm-hmm. I guess my question is, you know, how do you, what's the best way to deal with that type of micromanagement? Because I'm not very good at dealing with that. So how do you change a micromanager into a super boss if you're working for her? And the uh, the problem with a with a micromanager that doesn't have the other part of the story that super bosses come with, which is delegator. They delegate and they are closely attuned to what you're doing. They do both, kind of counterintuitive, but they do that. Uh, when you have one a person is just on one side, you have uh, you have a much deeper problem. Why do people do that? Is what I think about and mm-hmm. my experience at least. And Stu, I know you've thought about it and talked about this yourself a lot. Is um, that uh, when a boss doesn't truly trust the people on their team, mm-hmm. they end up uh, doing doing either too much, not delegating as much, or always kind of checking and checking and checking. And some of that could be internal to that person, and that person could highly benefit from some from some uh, coaching on occasion. Um, but uh, but other times it could be that the the subordinate in this in this example, Jessica in this example, no matter how good she is. Uh, might really need to sell up in a sense. We talk mm. about managing up. Well, what about selling up about how you're adding value, how you're creating value, and to, to kind of engender a deeper mm. level of trust between boss and, and team member. Jessica, do you want to follow up? Uh, do, does that make sense to you? Or do you see an opportunity for you to to, uh, to to change the relationship in such a way that your boss would trust you more and thereby be less micromanaging? Yeah, you know, I think you're right on with that. I think, you know, it does come down to, you know, every time you have a conversation, it's me explaining to her, reinforcing everything I've done and what I continue to do for the company. I guess my concern is, you know, because it's a continuous um, relationship that her and I have, you know, how do I make it easier and, you know, how can I make it so that she trusts me? Because I think it does come down to trust, and you're right about that. And to your point, I think, you know, I don't think she does trust me. I don't think she trusts anybody hmm. um, on the team. But um, I guess, I guess, how can I better work with her, um, knowing that she—that's how she feels. You know. Yeah. So, do you have any ideas? That—that's a really uh, tough situation. A lot of people find themselves in that situation. Yeah, they—they—they uh, abs- they absolutely do. Um, and um, and so I think uh, trying to uh, demonstrate your um, um, with results your your capability and what you can do. I don't know whether you know her well enough or can find a way to uh, suggest that she start to work with a uh, coach or some such thing. Uh, that could be a sensitive thing to ask directly, but maybe indirectly is a possibility. I know it's not. It's a lot easier to say what I'm about to say than do it. But sometimes you don't have the right boss, and that boss is not going anywhere. And you need to look for a, an internal transfer of some type or another opportunity. Um, 
some people just will not uh, will not change uh, because of who they are, and you know these, these some of these insecurities could be so deeply um, embedded in who they are that uh, they it, it started a long a long time ago. So um, I don't know that any of those are like great uh, solutions to this problem, but those are some of the things I'm thinking of. Jessica, thank you so much for your call. I hope you found that helpful. We are winding down uh, this uh, this wonderful conversation with Sydney. I want to ask you one more question before we do wrap, and that is, uh, what's the impact that you're hoping your book is going to have on uh, the business world in terms of uh, you know getting across a certain set of ideas and and tools that can help people cultivate talent and and uh, enrich their lives and their working lives. Yeah, you know, at a, a at an individual level, and, and I mentioned employee engagement before. Um, I I just find it uh, an abysmal situation when so many people are at a job that just doesn't have any fulfilling sense to it, where they're just totally not engaged. Super bosses, even though they could be tough, as we discussed, they absolutely do uh, convey the importance. Uh, of each person, they make you feel like you have an impact. I mean, the whole world of millennials—that's all they want. They want right from the start, and the super boss approach is a, is one that's very meaningful. And then the second thing is, from an organizational mm-hmm. point of view, if you look at where and how organizations have changed over the last ten, even twenty years, there's been incredible innovation in supply chain management, and manufacturing, and technology, and marketing, and sales. Where's the innovation when it comes to HR? And I know there are a lot of apps and software that helps mm-hmm. you run better meetings, and you know you can figure out where everybody is. And there's all there feedback mechanisms. I'm not saying they're bad things. They they all can add some value. But fundamentally, when you talk to senior executives, as you know, Stu, they're 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 talking the same thing. We need talent. We need to get better talent. We need to solve our talent problem. It's our number one concern. Well, if they keep saying that's the same problem. Year after year after year, it's time for something new, even if it sounds a little scary. And the super boss approach is that something new, I hope. Uh, Sydney, I think we've lost your signal here, unfortunately. Uh, and so I think we're going to have to bring it to a close here. I'm not sure what happened there, but um, I, I, I certainly got the main message, and that is that uh, the super boss approach is, is really. Uh, a systematic analysis of what it takes to grow talent in your organization. And uh, Sidney Finkelstein has uh, gathered a ton of really practical wisdom about that subject in this wonderful new book called Super Bosses. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Professor Sid Finkelstein, the author of Super Bosses. And that you took away at least one good idea that you can use now, particularly about how you grow by helping others grow. So here's an invitation, a challenge for you to try doing something, anything, in the next week or so that intentionally aims to help someone to grow in their career or in some other part of their life. What happens when you do this to you and to them? Why not try that? And if you do, please write to me and let me know what you discovered, whether or not your experiment worked out as you planned. I'd love to hear from you. You can tweet at Stu Friedman or just email me, friedman at wharton.upenn.edu. For more information about 
the great Sid Finkelstein. Just visit him online at tuck.dartmouth.edu. That's T-U-C-K dot dartmouth.edu. And I would so much appreciate your taking just a minute to rate and review our Work and Life podcast on iTunes or wherever you access this podcast. Thanks for listening to this episode of Work and Life. This conversation was originally recorded on my weekly radio show on Sirius XM 111, Business Radio, powered by Wharton. Tune in for live broadcasts of Work and Life on Tuesdays at 7 p.m. Eastern. For more about today's guest and about previous guests, check out our blog at workandlifepodcast.com. Join the conversation by tweeting at Stu Friedman. And for more ideas and tools for creating harmony among the different parts of life, check out our website, totalleadership.org, and my book, Total Leadership, Be a Better Leader, Have a Richer Life. If you like this podcast, please subscribe and share it with your friends, family, and coworkers. Until next time, I'm your host, Stu Friedman, and I thank you for joining me.